Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday to you, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you, so good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Well, there's an elephant in the room, which is that I'm wearing a tie, and I've had so many comments this morning that I did not expect. I'm not sure if I should be insulted or if I should just take it as a compliment, but for some of you, dressing up for Easter and putting on pastels is table stakes. For some of you, it's just, you know, it's the thing that you do only on special occasions. For me, it's, it's weddings, funerals, and resurrections. That's what I put on a tie for. I only dance at one of those, but... Whether you are high church or low church, we are glad that you're here today, and we want to begin today as we have for years past and as Christians have been doing in many cultures for hundreds of years, which is the pastor will, like, will stand in front of the congregation and say, he is risen, and the congregation will respond, he is risen indeed. And so let's try that three times together. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. And listen, the truth of the matter is there is nothing, nothing that has a bigger and more impactful meaning in your life than the reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And even as I say that, there may be some in the room who respond, well, that sounds like an overstatement. That's a pretty big claim to make. And certainly we live in a culture that enjoys hyperbole. I mean, not a year can go by where some announcer doesn't say that catch was the greatest catch in the history of football. Not a, not a week goes by where somebody probably doesn't tell you, you've got to check out this restaurant. This particular meal will change your life. It literally changes your life. And I'm of the generation, the millennial generation, the oft-maligned millennial generation that ruined the word literal, right? 
So when we say it, it now has no meaning at all because we use it so often. But understand the truth of what it is when we say He is risen. Understand that there is literally, in the true sense of the word, there is literally nothing in the history of the world that has more profound impact on your life than the resurrection. And in the text we're going to look at today, Paul is going to prove that for us. He's going to prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most amazing and significant thing to ever happen in the history of the world, that everything is different because of what Jesus Christ has done. 1 Corinthians 15 is interesting because in it, Paul assumes that the reader knows about Jesus. This whole chapter kind of stands alone. He presumes that you are familiar with the story. And so for a lot of reasons, it's actually appropriate in a Western culture for us to look at a text like this. But I want to point out to you at first what's interesting, which is that in two verses, Paul gives us the whole of the gospel. It begins in verse 3. Here's what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture and that He was buried. Now just stop right there for a moment. The Bible, understand this, is first and foremost not a system of beliefs and behaviors. It is not first and foremost a rule book for life or a guidebook for life, as many people have referred to it. No, the truth is that all 66 books of our Bible serve one primary purpose. It's what Paul calls in this passage that the thing that is of first importance, they reveal Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament exists to demonstrate our desperate need for Him. But despite having been created for fellowship with God and being given a law that revealed His holiness and His goodness, we were absolutely incapable of living, believing, and behaving in a way that honored Him appropriately. And so, from the very first pages of Scripture, we were promised a Savior, someone who could do on our behalf what we were absolutely incapable of doing ourselves, someone who would come to set things straight and set things right. It's that Savior that Paul and the whole New Testament talk about. And so Paul says in this text, do you know what's of first importance above all else, above everything else that you could know that is important in your life? Do you understand what's primary? And he starts by saying that Christ died. That as we talked about on Good Friday, when Jesus Christ came, humanity took that sinless Savior, the friend of sinners, the spotless lamb, the God-man, and we killed him. We killed him for who he was that Christ pursued us, and we murdered Him. And as Dave talked about on Good Friday, that you and I are all complicit in that murder, that by virtue of our sin, and sin being that transgression of the law, the violation of the law, the things that we commit that are against the Word of God, the things that we omit from our lives that we ought to do, we are all guilty and therefore needed the penalty paid for by Jesus Christ. And this isn't Jesus in this moment passing out or swooning or having a faint heartbeat. This is Jesus dead and buried, mummified in a tomb for three days. 
And Jesus died that cruel death on a cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion against him. And in dying in our place, he provided the forgiveness that we needed to have in order to have a right relationship with him. Now, that's a beautiful truth, and there's not a week that goes by where we don't proclaim that truth as a church. But hear me, if the story ended with Jesus on the cross, we'd still have a problem. We'd have been forgiven but spiritually dead. It'd be like receiving a cure for the disease that has already killed you. See, just as a cure is only effective if you're alive to enjoy the vitality that it provides, God's forgiveness is only beneficial if you're alive to enjoy the relationship that it provides. See, we needed new life. We needed resurrection. As we said on Good Friday, because we need that because do you know what dead people are able to do for themselves? Absolutely nothing. We needed an infusion of life. And, and, and Paul is going to make the argument for us that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross itself loses all meaning. It loses all purpose. It loses all validity. And the gospel itself is emptied of power if the resurrection didn't actually occur. In fact, Paul is going to say for us in verses 13 through 19, he's going to illustrate for us the centrality of the resurrection by talking about what Christianity would look like if the resurrection was removed. So look what he says beginning in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if we don't have a future hope of resurrection, of eternal life, of new life in Jesus Christ, then inherently what that means is that Jesus Christ himself was not raised. Verse 14, and if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They are dead eternally, spiritually, physically. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's saying, try to imagine for a moment what Christianity, what faith, what religion, depending on your perspective, would even look like if the resurrection is not real. And he starts by saying, it's hopeless. It's empty. You're wasting your time. If Jesus was not raised, then your sins have not been forgiven. Our life's work is wasted. Your faith is empty. Your death is final. And we deserve nothing but the pity of onlookers. In other words, the resurrection is the be-all and the end-all of the Christian faith, as one theologian referred to it. And it's this important because, because all sorts of people love their idea of who Jesus Christ is people from far outside the bounds of Christianity lift up Jesus as an example of what it is to be a good human, a good person, a generous person, a wise teacher, an example of kindness, a social commentator, an activist. But when it comes to Jesus being resurrected, they view it as a fairy tale. And the problem with that is Jesus himself. Because Jesus says of himself in the book of John chapter 2 that his identity his validity is all wrapped up in the resurrection. He says this after cleansing the temple and driving out the money changers. Some people come to him. They say, well, why should we believe in you? And here's Jesus' response in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it had taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, you see, Jesus, if he is not raised from the dead, you do not get to look at him with admiration in your life. You don't get to look at him as a good example or worthy demonstration of what it is to be a good human. You don't get to cling to his teaching or view him as a right model for living. You don't admire a fraud, a liar, and a lunatic. But the reason we can speak today with admiration and remembrance and thankfulness at the death of Jesus is that he did not stay in that grave. And if it's true that Jesus was dead, hearts stopped, brainwaves ceased, breath stopped, dead and buried for three days, and then he came back to life, then everything is now different. And that's exactly what Paul is going to say. Remember, he said, this is the thing that's of first importance. First, that Jesus Christ died and was buried. Second, continue reading in verse 3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. Verse 4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, what's striking about this is the simplicity and the directness of Paul's statement. And understand, he's not speaking here in spiritual abstraction. He's not speaking in metaphorical imagery that Jesus lives on through his teaching, that the Spirit of Jesus is with us even though he's dead. That's not what Paul means at all. He is stating the truth of the resurrection as historical fact that validated the claims of Jesus Christ. So think about this. On the third day, Jesus broke the pattern that had existed since the dawn of humanity, that you were born, you lived, and you died. And Jesus Christ broke that pattern. The resurrection is not just the undoing of death. It is the death of death that death itself meets its end in Jesus Christ, that death no longer gets the last word. Jesus gets the last word, and it is a word of life, that we needed to be born again, given new life, and Jesus provided it. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then understand what that means for you. It means that you as well can be confident that the same resurrection awaits those who believe in Him. As we sang this morning, made like Him, like Him we rise. It's the promise that for those who know Jesus Christ, there is a future resurrection and eternal life to be found in Him. And if that's true, then Jesus deserves nothing short of being the very center of your life and your affection. And notice now where Paul points the reader, verse 5. Not only did he rise from the dead, but he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, listen, as a modern person, as an intelligent person, as an intellectual person, I can't believe the idea that someone was resurrected back to life from the dead. Paul is actually going to state for you here that the reason he has such confidence in his faith, the reason that he can live his life the way that he does is because of the preponderance of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
He's saying the, resu- the, the, the evidence of the resurrection is so strong, it can't be avoided. And think about the argument from this perspective. Every other religion that exists in the world started in privacy and obscurity. Everybody from Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, to Muhammad himself claimed that God had appeared to them privately in secret, that he had revealed a new truth to them, and that he had then declared them the arbiters of a new faith. And they're essentially saying, you'll just have to take my word for it. But Christianity's beginnings happen in a wholly different way with all sorts of of witnesses. Paul says, if you're not sure if you believe this, go talk to one of the disciples. Talk to Peter. And if you want more proof, go talk to the 500 people who saw and interacted with Jesus at once. I mean, listen, one person might be crazy. And two people might be crazy. But 500 people at one time, you're talking about group delusion. And Paul says, ask them about it, challenge them on it. There isn't, this isn't some secret faith that's been delivered to one unquestionable messenger. This is a provable event that changes everything. It certainly changed everything for those that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you remember how all of the disciples met their end? Of the disciples that lived and saw Jesus' resurrection, all of them died in martyrdom except for John, who was boiled alive and sent out to live the remainder of his days on the Isle of Patmos. In other words, in an earthly sense, these people had everything to lose and nothing to gain by making up this story. Well, why were they willing to do that? Because as one theologian said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Well, how did the resurrection give the people the boldness to experience that sort of suffering on Jesus' behalf? Look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And that language of Christians falling asleep is used throughout the New Testament. You find it in 1 Thessalonians, you find it here, you find it elsewhere. This language is fascinating. Paul is reporting that some of the people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ had died, but he then uses this language that that they'd fallen asleep. And the first time we see that language comes up in John chapter 11 with the death of Lazarus. If you remember the story, Mary and Martha come to Jesus and they say, you need to come quickly. Your friend Lazarus is on the verge of death. If you don't get there and heal him, he is going to die. And Jesus says, well, I'll come, but he continues to stay in the city where he was located. He ministered for two more days. And Mary and Martha come to him and they say, well, you missed your shot. He's gone. He's dead. You could have intervened and you didn't. And Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. And if you remember the story, Jesus comes into this city, he comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he weeps in that moment at the absurdity of death. 
He weeps in heartbreak for his friends. He weeps at the effects of sin on those whom he loved. Jesus calls for the grave to be opened and they caution him saying, at this point his body is going to stink. He's been dead too long. Don't open the tomb. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Lazarus, come forth. And here comes dead Lazarus, resurrected to life anew. See, when we say that Jesus Christ died for us, what we mean is that Jesus experienced the fullness of death. He experienced the essence of hell, the absence of God at the presence of the cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, he showed with finality finality that he is the only one who has power over death itself. And that just as certainly as Lazarus walked out of the grave and Jesus rose from the dead, so will you and I, if we trust and believe in him. See, when you know the one who holds the keys to eternity, the one who defeated the grave, death loses its power. It's not to say that we don't mourn the loss of those who've died. Of course we do, but rather we grieve as those who have hope. The poisonous, eternal sting of death has been removed. For the believer, death is sleep. That to close your eyes in this life is to open them in the eternal presence of an infinitely loving God. Because we believe as well in the future resurrection of the bodies in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. He experienced the fullness of death so that for the Christian, the power of death is diminished to that of sleep. So the great author, theologian, C.S. Lewis, said it this way. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the firstfruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. See, in death, those who know Christ can be absolutely certain of our eternal destiny, perfectly assured of the coming resurrection, completely confident of being with Christ in eternal, unbroken communion. So if you are here and you're not sure if you believe any of this, let me just say, there is no sure and certain hope in life built on anything but him. Built on the power of his death and the power of his resurrection, if your hope is not built, if your joy is dependent on anything else, it will not and it cannot last. And our prayer for you today is that God would grant you a belief in the power of his resurrection that he loved you infinitely, willing to go to the cross, and that his power likewise is infinite over everything we fear in this life, including death itself. 
And if you're a believer here today, let's rejoice in this. Let's live as those who've been made alive from the dead. Let's set our affections and our passions on the new identity, the new motivation, the destination that we've been given. Because he is risen, Satan has lost. Because he is risen, sin does not own me. Because he is risen, death does not have the final word. Because he is risen, hell is not my destiny. Because he is risen, not only has my insurmountable debt been paid, but I am assured that I can never go into debt again. Because he is risen, I have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Because he is risen, everything has changed. He is risen. risen Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the recording of the most impactful and profound moment in the history of the world, and we thank you for the promise that since Jesus Christ was risen, we will rise as well. God, I pray that you would not allow us to just walk away from this morning thinking of the resurrection as a fable or a fairy tale or a nice story, but that in it we would see a Savior so loving that he came and was willing to die and a God so powerful that the grave could not stand against him. So, Lord, let our eyes be opened to your word and your person. Would we wonder at your glory and your majesty? And would we be inexorably changed because of the truth of your word living in our hearts today? And it's in the beautiful name of our resurrected Savior that we pray. Amen.